Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 11. This is Writing Excuses. Digital is different with Cory Doctorow. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Piper. I'm Howard. And I'm Corey. And we're joined today by our special guest, Corey Doctorow. Corey, would you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Sure. I'm a science fiction novelist and an activist. I work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a nonprofit in San Francisco. I live in Los Angeles. I'm Canadian by birth and British by naturalization. I'm a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University, a visiting professor of library science at the University of North Carolina, a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab, and I'm one of the owners of the website Boing Boing. So you have some experience with the digital world there. Sure. One of the things that our listeners have been wondering about, um, and this is a, a thing that I think face, uh, affects a lot of early career writers, is the idea of getting out there and, and making yourself known. And it's expensive to go places, especially if you're someplace remote like Perth, Australia, um, or if you just have social anxiety and don't want to be around mm. people. What are some of the ways that uh, we can network without actually going into meet space, just being in the digital world? So let me start with a general disclaimer, which is that there is a certain futility in asking writers who broke in 20 years ago what you should do to break in. <laughs> and Fair. I always remember going to science fiction cons as a kid and hearing like crusty old people say like, look, if you want to sell a story to John W. Campbell, you got to throw a manuscript over his transom at two in the morning and then you buy him a nickel cup of coffee as he's coming in the door. And it's like, first of all, he was a Nazi. And second of all, he doesn't edit anymore. He's been dead for years. So, so I can't claim <laughs> to know how you would break in, right? And if you didn't have the common sense, gumption, and stick to itiveness to be born in 1971 and on the internet in the early 80s, you know, you've only got yourself to blame. That said, um, you know, I, uh, um, publishers' uh, ha role has changed over the years, and it's called into question what the like foundational role of a publisher is. And I favor the definition that says that a publisher's job is to make a work public. And that is to say, you identify a work, you identify an audience for it, and you take such steps as are necessary to make the work and the author uh, and the audience connect with one another. And so one of the things publishers do for writers in that capacity is that stuff. Now, obviously, if you're not published, you need a, a, a new thing to do to, to bring yourself into contact with audiences. And, I, and I'm also skeptical of the enterprise of networking per se, right? You have to have a reason to be networking. I mean, that reason might be that it makes you feel nice um, and that when you feel nice, you write well. But, uh, it, you know, you, you, should, you should know what it is you're hoping to accomplish. And if that's to make people interested in your work because it's published or because you hope that having a following will entice a publisher to uh, bring you around, then um, the one thing I can tell you for sure is that if you're not enjoying yourself, 
uh, no one is going to enjoy what you're doing. You know, this is the golden age of of grifty multi-level marketing schemes. And we all know how creepy it feels to have someone uh, make our personal relationships transactional by asking us if we'll come to a half hour seminar on sex toys or Tupperware or whatever it is, uh, or, you know, leggings. And so you really have to be there for a non-instrumental reason first. And if you're not, then it's the wrong thing for you. Right. Yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned relationships, Piper. It looked like you had something. I did actually. Um, So even though I think I'm in a comparable age to you, I came to publishing at a later stage. Sure. And so uh, again, I'm not breaking in at this time and, and, and potentially about a decade ago. But what I have to offer to that is that um, social media was invaluable to me breaking into my career in two different ways. In one aspect, it was learning to be part of the writing community online, which was my major goal first, as opposed to promoting a book. And because I was genuinely just trying to get to know people, interact with people, and kind of get the lingo of the industry, the relationships that I built were built were more genuine. Uh, and they were on Twitter, and they were on Facebook, and, you know, the the idea behind that is as people knew I was genuine, they were much more open when they found out that I had something to promote or market Mm. at that stage. They were like, Oh, Hey, I'd love to give you a shout out because I know who you are, or I'd love to invite you into this collaboration, or I'd love to invite you into this thing. And so I built kind of a social network um, before I had something to market. That said, I would also caution people not to focus so hard on building that network online before you have something because ultimately what we're there for is to write and we don't want to feed too much time into the effort to be online and develop a presence online when really we're supposed to be writing so there's this weird balance Mm. you know that comes with that if if i can uh approach the non-genuine elephant in the room of of the messaging at the core of author marketing the messaging at the core is uh, my book is the thing that you want more than anything else in the world. And when you read it, it's the most fun you're ever going to have. But if I say that as my message, hmm. no one will believe me. What are the things that I say or do to transmit that message? The message that you want to send for your book. I mean, what I said was almost, you know, soda commercial levels of uh marketing speak. But by saying it that way, uh, hopefully, dear listener, I've opened your mind to the way you need to be thinking about that purchasing decision. You want people to buy your book. Why do they want to buy your book? Because they're going to love it, because they're super interested in it. How do you convince them of that? Saying that message, in other words, comes back to uh, being genuine. And that's why it seems so... That's why marketing seems so evil. It's why it seems like a lie. If I want people to buy my book as a result of my presence on Twitter, I need to seem like someone they would like to spend time with. I need to seem interesting. I need to feel like a friend. When I appear on panels with other authors, I don't need to shout out the name of my book. I need to look like someone that they are friends with so that whatever good reputation they have reflects well on me. And I know this sounds like evil, horrible marketing speak, but as we're recording this, I'm wearing a necktie. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's true. <laughs> this, is, is. this is one of the lives. This is one of the lives that I came from, and it applied so, so clearly to what I was doing as an early web cartoonist. I realized that the persona I had online was not read my comic. The persona was I'm fun. Hmm. And this is a thing that, so I come out of it from theater, and my mom was an arts administrator. And so when we were doing things in meat space all the time, one of the things that she taught me was that the other person was always more interesting than you. Mm. And that what you're doing is that you are listening to people and you're engaging with them by listening. And that works really, really well in person. Online, it plays out differently. There you have to think about... Uh, two things. One thing is I'm glad that we're all talking about relationships because like when you go to your favorite coffee shop, you don't go because they have the best coffee. Um, mm -hmm. You go because of the relationship with the barista, the, the, because of the mood, the feel of the place. And if any of that shifts, it doesn't matter how good the coffee is. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, a place can be fantastic and have beautiful atmosphere. And if the coffee is not good, maybe you don't go. So you have to have both things. You have to have content and you have to have personality. I, I um, you know, I, I think that there's the potential that if you're an introvert or someone who doesn't want to do this stuff, this can feel like a council of despair. And the, there is a kind of hard truth at the center of that, which is that different technological moments favor different mode of modes of creator. You know, you talked about live entertainment. Well, obviously before there was live recording at all, the like most dispositive factor in the success of a performer was not virtuosity as much as it was stage presence. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, when the phonogram comes along and the radio comes along, you know, the, it, it becomes a completely different market for the arts. That suddenly it's, it's in the absence of seeing the performer, how good does the performance sound becomes much more important than that, like, numinous, difficult to pin, pin down thing that happens when you see a riveting performer. And we've all had that experience of being at a, a show and being completely taken away by it, and then watching a YouTube video of that same show and having, being like, oh, yeah, I hear where he missed those notes and whatever. But it was that feeling of, of being there that the performer was able to create. And this moment really is a moment that is very good to people who are very good at being charming online. And so, you know, my favorite example of this is Joe Walton, who's a wonderful, wonderful writer. But she's not just a wonderful writer. She's just a spectacularly interesting person, especially in, in print online. And her career started writing really interesting message board posts in RecArts SF on Usenet that were interspersed with really good poetry in RecArts SF Poetry. And that led Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's now the vice president at Tor, but was then the, an editor at Tor, to ask her if she had a book. And now she's won a Hugo Award for Best Novel. He, he solicited a novel from her on the strength of the, the, the voice in her prose. There are people who I'm sure would write wonderful novels who couldn't pull that off. And it's actually a pity that they're going begging. But it is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. We live in this moment. That story illustrates another marketing principle that I, I stress when I'm doing my Marketing 101 presentation, which is that uh, your, your message goes out to different audiences. Mm. My message to the person who's going to buy my book and read it as a consumer 
is, you know, this is the funniest use of $15 you'll ever whatever. My message to a publisher is this book will be easy to edit and I will be easy to work with and we will make lots of money together. Yeah, I actually think that the third one actually isn't even as important as the other two. (laughs) I think there are a lot of editors. I mean, every editor wants to book a bestseller, but they also just don't want to have their lives made miserable by terrible writers. Those first two are key. Um, When you have relationships online, uh, when you have relationships at conventions and you are talking to fellow professionals, when you are talking to agents and editors, uh, yeah, pitching them your book is different than pitching them the fact that you are personable and professional and easy to work with. And and I've had people come up to me, I always said that the answer is no, I've had people come up to me and say, do you have a book yet? Hmm. Because they're ready, they're ready to, to work. Mm-hmm. Hey, writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So I think this is a good spot to pause and do some online promotion. Let's talk sure. about our book of the week. Yeah, let me let me pull it up on my phone here so I get all the details right. So uh, the book that I've chosen is uh, Naomi uh, Kritzer's forthcoming uh, debut novel, which I think may have been published by the time we do this episode. It's coming out in, in November. Uh, Naomi won the Hugo Award in 2016 for a short story that was absolutely brilliant called Cat Pictures, Please. That was about a an AI that wanted cat pictures. And her new book, her first book, it's called Catfishing on the Catnet. And it's kind of a novelization of this. And it's about these close-knit online communities that are um, uh, where many of the participants turn out to be all the one AI. And uh, uh, about the adventures that they get to in uh, the AI defending them and they defending each other and and the AI. And and ultimately, you know, what happens when the world discovers there's a general purpose AI and it really likes cute pictures of cats. And it sounds like a madcap comic novel. And there is a lot of uh, 
racing around in it. There's a lot of chase scenes. But what makes it so endearing and, and lovely is the relationships that she draws. And it's about these tight-knit online communities where, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're an AI who likes cats, but they do know that you're someone that they that they trust and even come to love. And and about the the depth and feeling of uh, communities of intent online. It's, it's written with all of her style and verve. It is a first novel in the best sense of the word. You know, it, it feels like a novel that someone spent their whole life thinking about. And it's full of so many grace notes, so much sly humor, it's really um, a wonderful book. I can't recommend it enough. And that's awesome. Catfishing on the Catnet by, by Naomi, Naomi Kritzer. That's, and she is a fantastic writer. I'm ex- very excited to see this novel. So let's actually talk about um, the, the idea of community online, but specifically the personalities that we create. One mm-hmm. of the things some people wonder about, especially uh, women going into writing, is whether or not they should have a pen name. And often people who are in a professional setting, do they need to create a persona for themselves mm-hmm. as a shield? Um, what are some of the pros and cons of that? Uh, I'm going to keep riffing until someone else jumps in. I'll jump in. (laughs) Uh, So for those of you who may or may not know, Piper J. Drake is a pen name. And in fact, it is my second pen name. I originally started publishing as PJ Schneider in science fiction, steampunk, paranormal romance. Thank goodness you didn't say I was originally John Norman. (laughs) (laughs) All the nope. (laughs) So many wrong answers. Hmm. And actually, PJ was derived because of my handle on Prodigy way back. Um, So that was always fun. And so uh, the reason why I chose a pen name, because I had a lot of people say, hey, why aren't you proud of your work? Uh, And in particular, there's also a question for Asian diaspora as to why you pick a pen name that sounds, please excuse the phrasing, but rather white bread. Um, And there's a whole lot of complexity that you can dive into that. But from a professional standpoint, the reason why I picked a pen name was because I do maintain a parallel career in a corporate mm-hmm. environment. Um, while most of my coworkers and colleagues all know that I write as a parallel career, my clients do not. And mm. my clients could potentially feel that there is a conflict of interest or a conflict of focus if they perceive that I'm working on stuff um, other than their project or their particular objectives and goals. So I opted to use a pen name so that I continue to have this parallel career. And also I was already published with white papers and speaking publicly under my real name. And I wanted to keep that content separate. Um, Yeah. And that's um, at, at risk of trying to bucket things in, in a way that makes it look like it all fits um, that the idea of, of message, um, if your name has become associated with one message, using that name to send a different message can be difficult. Yes. If your name gets associated with a message as an author, and the message is, I write, you know, fun hanky-panky. Which I do. Which you do. um, That message may not fit well with your tech customers in your day job. It's the spicy Cajun visine problem. Visine? Yeah, that would be a bad idea. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. No. I just heard thinking about that. Spicy Cajun Visine. Yeah. Uh, now, all that said, I have to say that um, for me, being someone who's one inch deep and 10 miles wide and is known for having a lot of different things going on has been a real strength. Uh 
it for one thing it it I think it makes people think of me in lots of different contexts, right? And that and um people think of me as as having something to say beyond just the narrowness of the field. It it uh I think redounds to my favor in terms of getting invited to forums that are not necessarily just science fiction forums. And there is in the in terms of like market differentiation, market planning, you know, um you can try and get a bigger piece of the science fiction pie. But the science fiction pie is not very big. You know, when you look at kind of runaway bestsellers, they're all books that appeal to people who just don't buy books, right? It's yeah. J.K. Rowling did not capture 100% of the book reading public. She captured 5% of the non-book reading public. And that's what yeah. made her one of the best-selling novelists of all time, right? And so having, being known for lots of other stuff is kind of interesting. I did want to say that, um, you know, the the... I, I can't speak to a woman's experience as a writer, but I recently uh, read uh, a book called uh, The Future is Female uh, by uh, Lisa Yazek from Libra um, Library of America Press. Mm -hmm. And it's a book about uh, women pioneers in science fiction. And my mentor was Judith Merrill, who moved to Toronto after the 1968 police riots, decided mm -hmm. she didn't want to raise her kids in, in the States. Mm -hmm. And so we benefited in Canada from her presence there. And Judy plays a big role in it. And one of um, the editor's theses from having talked to these writers and their editors and their children and so on, is that a lot of the women who wrote under pen names did so not because they didn't want to be known as women, but because they all had high-powered careers. A bunch of them were spooks. Um, and like, so they were working in, you know, the Office of Strategic Services was the precursor to the CIA. And they just didn't want to be associated with, like, they, they just had to keep a separate identity because they had sensitive, you know, military industrial roles, which I was really fascinated by. You know, I, I, one of my other mentors was Tanya Huff, who began her career writing under T.S. Huff, but switched to Tanya Huff, I think in part because it became an asset to be known as a woman who writes military SF, that mm -hmm. that was like, that was um, not so much a curiosity as a, a benefit that, you know, we all know what dudes write like when they're writing military SF. Women writing military SF are interesting and and uh, have a, like, are, are a break from the fair as usual, you know? I agree. But one of the things about this is that we are dealing with um, systemic issues, right? Sure. So, and we're, we can go down this rabbit hole a pretty long way, but uh, one of the things that happens is that publishers actually print more copies of books by men, uh, or a male-sounding name, because bookstores buy more of them, because reviewers review more of them. And so book the publishers then, recognizing the higher demand, print more books by men, so mm. the bookstores... So there's this cycle that happens. Sure. Uh, in the United States... Um, 48% of the book of science fiction and fantasy is written by women and 52% is written by men. But when you look on the shelves, only 18% wow. is, uh, and, and that's an average. Um, oh. I have been into stores where it's the only person, only woman that they had shelved was Ursula K. Le Guin, literally. Wow. Not I used to follow your tweets about being in the airport and counting how many female authors there were in the science fiction fantasy section mm -hmm. versus men. And yeah. it was just very... It was it was a clear demonstration. Yeah. How does yeah. that break down indie versus uh, BNN? So that's a great question. It is that is something that is um, uh, the what I have found is that it is slightly better on the indie side, uh -huh. but not universally. Really? Um, yeah, and and one of that is that a lot of indie bookstores are owned by women, uh, and also, but the best ratio I've ever found was thirty four percent. And also, we want to take into account the fact that. 
we're acknowledging and we are respecting now that there is a non-binary factor to this consideration as well. So pen names don't necessarily have to indicate gender, but systemically, people will default towards what they think a name should be. Um, Case Alexander, for example, is a great, great, great author. Amazing. She used to be Karina Cooper, and that's when I met her. And she wrote steamy, steamy steampunk. Um, and then she changed to KC Alexander. And then, um, actually, is she, she there? They, they. I apologize, Case. I forgot. And that's terrible. I will fix it in notes. Um, but Case uh, also writes as Case Alexander. Really, really hmm. kick-ass sci-fi. Uh, and Case is non-binary. Um, and there are a lot of people who are queer or non-binary. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and it, it's something that is is difficult to track in a bookstore. Yeah. So basically what we're saying here is that when you are choosing your pen name, you're thinking about the relationships, but you're also mm. – it, there's not an easy answer there. And it's it's also an answer that is going to shift over time. And yeah. across genres. And across genres. Like if you're in YA or romance, it it you are – and that was another thing uh, when you look at the um, where women who write science fiction and fantasy get shelved. A lot of times they get shelved in YA, huh. even if they are actually writing something that is adult. Wow. Sarah J. Mass comes to mind. Yes. Uh, but also, if you cross genre, I was asked to switch from PJ Schneider to a new pen name uh-huh. because I wrote paranormal romance and sci-fi and steampunk, and I was switching to romantic suspense. And so they asked for a new pen name to give me a fresh start with readers who would not normally be open to my previous genre. So that's a thought, too. So, dear listeners, what we're saying is it's complicated and it changes all the time. And there's it's a moving target. It depends. Nancy Kress was one of my writing teachers at Clarion. And one of the pieces of advice she had for women writers was that you're probably going to divorce your husband statistically. So think long and hard about whether or not his name is going to go on your spine because she hasn't been married to Mr. Cress in a very long time. That is a fascinating and terrifying POV. And also I'm something... I'm just giggling here. Like, I can't comment on that one. No, I'm just like... <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's... I mean, that's a... That's a state that that's a yes, that's a statement. That's yep. a point. <laughs> yep, that's a point. Yep. That is a that is a thing that someone said that I well, cannot now unremember. I think yes. it's not terrible advice. I think that, you know, picking a pen name if you've if you've just taken a married name, picking a pen name that yep. isn't your married name is not the worst idea in the world. Yep. Yeah. Kind of hedges your bets. Yeah. So <laughs> pen names complicated. Pen names complicated. Online life complicated. Um this was a very helpful episode, I think, because we've left you with as many questions as you started with. Uh, we're going to wrap up by giving you a homework assignment. The homework assignment that I'm going to give you is I want you to think about what your pen name would be. And it's very easy for women to think about this because we've seen a lot of examples of it. But I want to make sure that everybody thinks about this. I want you to think of a name, a pen name that is decidedly female. I want you to think of a pen name that is non-binary, that you can't tell anywhere, could be anywhere on the spectrum, and I want you to pick a pen name that is decidedly male Mm. and see what those things feel like as names. But here's the catch. I want them to all feel like you. Added bonus challenge, practice the signature. That's a good one. Did anyone else, was anyone else smart enough to not use the signature that they use in their checks to sign books? 
I still, I, I'm dumb. Yeah. Bonus content at the end. Make sure that your legal signature and your autograph do not match <laughs> to avoid also, identity theft. Also, get Corey to sign a book for you. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts for this episode were Mary Robinette Kowal, Piper J. Drake, Howard Taylor, and special guest Corey Doctorow. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.